The reality of modern agriculture is that most people don't have a good understanding of how food is produced. It's worth it then to talk to farmers and, and get an understanding of what their day looks like, what they do, and how they feel about the food they produce. My name is Mike Von Massow, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Jennifer Tilton Flood, who, along with her family, produces milk on a dairy farm in uh, Maine in the United States. We talk about what they do on a day-to-day basis, how she feels about being a dairy farmer. And we talk a little bit too about how they sell their milk and opportunities and challenges of working with their local co-op. So we really get a sense of not only how food is produced, but also uh, how they market their milk and how it gets to us in the grocery store or in food service. I'd highlight that because Jenny had rural internet, the connection isn't great. This is only going to be an audio version of the podcast. And at the end, you'll notice it cuts off when our internet connection went down. But I thought the conversation was worth protecting and presenting. So you'll notice an abrupt end, but I think it's worth a listen. I apologize also for the sound quality uh, on Jenny's recording. We've done our best to upgrade it. But again, I think it's worth a listen. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jenny. Jenny, it's great to meet you, and uh, thanks for taking the time to come on for a chat. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, let's start. You're a dairy farmer, and I think to many people, dairy farming is a bit of a mystery. So tell us a little bit about your farm to start. So our dairy farm is like every other dairy farm out there in the aspect that we are taking care of land and cows and producing fresh milk for our neighbors um, to be a part of their diet. But individually speaking, we are a three-generation, six-family, 21-family member farm that works with 31 co-workers taking care of 3,400 cows, and our cows are milking herders, 1,700. They produce around 17,000 gallons of milk every day for our neighbors, and this farm has been in the family for well over 200 years. It's been producing milk for neighbors since 1927, and I should note also, and I try to acknowledge this whenever I can, that while our family started here uh, over 200 years ago, the land is unceded. It belonged to the Wabanakis of this area, and it was stolen from them. So we're very mindful of that as we steward the land, and we call it our home. We acknowledge that it was someone else's home before it was stolen. Okay. And I appreciate that. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge. I think many people will hear, oh, that's a big farm. And it is. But lots of people don't know what farmers do day to day. And you talked about 21 family members and a bunch of staff. What do you think would surprise people that happens on a dairy farm? So I generally run into two camps of people, people who are unaware of the schedule, the the almost monotony of our day that is, you know, built in stone. And then there are those who are unaware of how chaotic our days can be. So, I mean, there are certain things that are done every single day in routine. You know, my husband is in charge of managing our feed and feeding our cows. So he works with 
for our other folks and they make sure every morning starting around 3 a.m. that they're preparing the mixture of feed and the, to the specifications of our nutritionist to make sure that each barn can be fed when they are being milked. And my brother-in-law is every morning making sure that those cows are being milked every day and it takes about four hours for our herd to be milked and that happens three times a day. So from four to eight in the morning, noon to four in the afternoon and eight to midnight in the evening. And then there's the regular making sure that while the cows are being milked and out of the barn, that their barn is tidied up, that their bedding is fluffed or we add to their bedding and we make sure that it's clean and that we remove the manure from the from the alleyways. We're making sure they've been fed and if the food needs to be pushed up closer to them in some barns, that's done. And in crop seasons, it's field and soil preparation, nourishing the soil with the manure from the cows, planting as well as harvesting. And, and that's all the stuff we know needs to be done. And then there's all the stuff that we don't need that we don't know that needs to be done when something breaks down. If there's an issue with the water, with the cold temperatures we're experiencing right now, there's been a lot of issues with water being available for our cows, so that's taken up a lot of time of the crew, and that adds to their day, making sure that we have that availability of free choice clean water for them, and uh, making sure that the equipment is well cared for so that it can, you know, per Regular maintenance is an everyday occurrence, and then repairs for not just mechanical problems, but those those always logistical issues where sometimes you just don't clear the, the side of the barn and something gets dinged. So those are the sorts of things that happen every day. Every day is set in stone, but every day is also a mystery waiting to unfold, I think. Yeah. And I think that there's one point that you made that I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on, because I think this is something that many milk consumers are blissfully unaware of, is you said in your introduction that you manage about, and and I may get the numbers wrong, over 3,000 cows, but uh, you milk about 1,700 cows. And I think, you know, we've done some work where we ask consumers, true or false, a cow has to have a calf to give milk. And only about 25% of Canadians can say confidently, yes, that's true. Many say, I don't know. Now, that's not only a mystery about the dairy industry. I think that's a failing of our education system. You know, that's basic mammalian biology. But talk a little bit about those that about those cows that aren't being milked and how it stops and she has to have another calf. You know, that's a really great point because it is, I think, hard for us when we're not working with these animals, whether it's, you know, whatever types of mammals they are, it's hard for us to immediately assume their lives are just like ours. But when it comes to dairy cows, yes, they're not going to be able to lactate or produce milk until after they've had a calf. And so what that means is for the part of our herd that is actively lactating, or in in human words, we would refer to them as nursing moms, that is about 1,700 cows. So that remaining number of animals on our herd um, involves an age range of the calves that were born today, so we're only one day old, to cows that may be 16 or 17 years old on our farm. But they're currently in what we in the business refer to as a dry period, but in reality, we would call it on mat leave, right? It's just yeah. that their mat leave actually is occurring prior to them having their calf. 
Um, so what we're doing is we're providing that 45 to 90 days of focusing entirely on eating and relaxing and drinking water and growing that calf for the next few few weeks and months um, inside them before they do go back to work their 10-minute shift in the milking parlor. And uh, so, I mean, that's that's the bulk of, of our animals. We have the young stock that's not ready had a calf, so they're nowhere near lactating, and it's our job to make sure that they're ready for their life and career in the dairy industry. And then we have other cows that are currently on mat leave, and um, we also have the ones that are milking. So it's kind of like three levels of uh, of the career ladder here. Um, and none is none of these rungs are below each other. They're all just equal rungs, and just it's where you're at at what point in your life cycle here. Yeah, and so you're managing also reproduction, and you know before she becomes her dry period, or as you said, the mat leave, she has to be bred again, and then and then she'll have a calf, and then she'll lactate again. And I think that's that you know the the three times milking a day. Some places do twice. Yep. But those are things that I think many people don't have a good understanding of in terms of just the basic biology and process that dairy farmers go through every day. Tell me, I mean, you're clearly passionate about farming and you're clearly passionate about what you do. What do you love about dairy farming? So, you know, I think one of the reasons I am so passionate about agriculture and dairy farming and living in a rural environment is is because I, I wasn't actually born on a farm. I am the first generation on both sides of my family that was not born on a farm. And, and it took me almost two decades to find my way back to one. But, you know, it's something that I got to choose. And it's something that I, I hold fast. And I think that's human nature, that if there's something you want and you are able to get what you want, you are very fiercely protective of it. And there's a drive and a passion that's sort of embedded in you for that. So, so yes, I am very passionate about it. And I do love it because I love the fact that People entrust me with producing food for their families. I walk into a store and there's a student, you know, a young student from a classroom I visited and he tells his his mom or his dad, he says, That's my farmer, mom you know, and it's it's very it's it's really rewarding and 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 that sort of feeds that passion because as much as I love being able to raise my family here, the fact that we can make a living through our way of life, which I think a lot of us in agriculture do not understand the privilege of being able to do that. You know, we don't understand that not everybody gets to call home work and not everybody gets to raise their kids and give them an opportunity for a way of life right there from the get-go. And it's a lot different in the other parts of the world where people are in careers doing things that we don't want to do. We dairy farmers and we in agriculture, we don't want to do it. And <laughs> we, we're doing our job because we love it. There's a waiting list to get into this career. There's barriers that prevent it. But, it, you know, we, we can do this job because they're all doing their job and they can do their jobs because we are doing ours. And, and that's what I love about it is that you know, I have this space to breathe and I also have um, something good to start with and, and I have the ability to make it better. So. Good. You're clearly passionate about it and you articulated that well. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the things that are you maybe make you pull your hair out or grimace a little bit? So 
as if I was born to be a farmer because I can list all the things I'm ticked off about really easily. So (laughs) the challenges of managing a fresh food product in an economic system that is viable and meaningful for everyone involved is very challenging. We can do the best we can ever do, and we are still not going to be doing the best for everybody else. That's frustrating. Inertia, the unwillingness to change or look at the opportunity of change. One of the issues that face dairy farming, I don't care where you are, is the fact that it is not exactly diverse and it doesn't acknowledge that lack of diversity and it does nothing sometimes to actually work to expand that diversity, whether we're talking about marketing our products or who is actually producing our food. Um, And the idea that it shouldn't be different because the way we've always done it has worked and this seems to be endemic in agriculture as well, that we have to keep doing it the same way because we're dishonoring the world and our heritage if we actually choose to do it differently. Those things are really, really problematic for me. I deal with them every day. And yes, I do deal with the fact that being a woman in agriculture does have challenges. There are barriers to people who don't fit a certain um, stereotype of a dairy farmer or a farmer throughout both U.S. and and Canada and throughout the world. And there's a lack of understanding within our own industry of the actual fact that we operate our farms differently and differently doesn't mean badly. Someone who you mentioned earlier milking cows two times a day or three times a day. There are some farms that milk their cows one time a day. It's so important that each farm and farmer finds the best that is what, what works best for their farm, their situation, their herd, their land, the people they depend upon to, to help them care for their animals. And respecting that differences can be still good. Um, there's There are certain situations and instances where there is only one right way to do something, and that's more of a scientific thing. But, you know, in reality, when it comes to, to everyday operation, diversity and change is not acknowledged as well as it should in in valued as much as it should be within dairy farming. And, and that is probably one of the things I dislike about it the most. Okay. You talked for a second at the beginning, and I'm going to pick up, and I appreciate everything you said there, but you talked at the second at the beginning about a fresh and perishable product. And I think that that's something that's maybe not entirely unique to the dairy industry, but is more acute in the dairy industry because of the short life, you know, and making sure it's not just producing it, but making sure you have a place to sell it. And that there are days that perhaps that that doesn't happen. And to me, that's what, you know, you and I were talking offline earlier about this viral video here in Canada about someone dumping milk because they're over quota. And and I pointed out recently to a, a radio interviewer that I saw something on Twitter this morning where a farm in the U.S. said that our processor's not taking milk. They don't have sales for it or they don't have capacity for it. We're dumping 90,000 gallons. To me, that's got to be heartbreaking as a farmer, but it is one of the things we have to very closely manage, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I know the video you're talking about from the dairy farmer who, who even though he, they're not new to supply management, they've, they, for whatever reason, are mismanaging their cows and not producing to their contract. And I get it. It's a struggle. We, we're under production levels here as well in the U.S., 
And it's a shame, you know, it is frustrating as a dairy farmer to see milk go down the drain for whatever reason, whether it wasn't high quality enough, if, you know, you regret that you made a mistake, that you, you had, there was a problem or equipment failure or road closures due to weather or, or in our instance, there is a local ice cream producer that had a catastrophic fire yesterday in its processing room. That is going to affect how milk moves in the state of Maine. It doesn't mean anyone will be dumping milk, but it just means that the limited amount of home for milk has uh, fewer homes available to it right now due to that type of situation. But I mean, regardless, farmers get frustrated when they're not feeding as many people as possible. But in as a consumer and an eater, I want what I want. And and if I don't want to drink, you know, 12 gallons of milk a week, then I'm not going to buy 12 gallons of milk. So someone in between me and the farmer producing that milk has to figure out, well, what is the food she wants to eat and what do we need to do to deliver it? But, you know, so there's that. But it isn't simply just a dairy issue, and you're right. This occurs um, on-farm food waste. Um, occurs in all sorts of products, especially in produce. If you know, and and it can occur not because they haven't produced enough or because there isn't a home for it. A lot of times, that food waste is because that tomato doesn't look pretty enough, and that becomes an issue. You know, um, so there's a lot of ways, and we've gotten so much better now that you know, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have been discussing this because we wouldn't have thought of of it as food waste. We wouldn't have thought of all the implications it causes. And especially in the U.S. where cheap food policy has been sort of king of the hill for a long time, as long as we can pump out that milk or that food and sell it really cheaply or put it into food that's very cheap, it seemed like it was working. But what we're realizing now that the ramifications are dire, not only for the health of our communities and the lack of nourishment for the people who live here, but the inequities that persist and, you know, multiply. So, you know, because interesting that people sometimes conflate like they've seen that video of that farmer dumping that milk that they produced knowing full well they weren't going to be able to ship without having to spend their own money. They're conflating that with the fact that there are hungry people at food banks. But that doesn't that wouldn't alleviate anything. If that milk cannot be processed, it cannot feed anybody. Good food is what feeds people. Cheap food is just a panacea. And it doesn't help anyone except for in the short run, and it causes devastation later. I, I remember, and this example rings true, especially coming out of the last years of the pandemic, there were issues where huge markets closed down, uh, congregate feeding, institutional feeding. And so there were lots of processors and, and, and bottling plants who said, you know, we, we, can't, we can't take the milk and process it into this these pet formats, you know, like huge containers of, of cottage cheese or sour cream that were specifically for, you know, stadiums, we can't do that because it will just go to waste and it will cost money. So we're not going to take the milk. That was the decision. And so some farms had to dump the milk. And I remember a person who produces eggs being so upset with me because they said, you just should be bringing it to the food bank instead because that's what I do with my eggs. And I explained to them, I said, no, in reality, you were simply bringing eggs. In order for me to bring what we produce, if we had had to dump to a food bank, 
the correct analogy would be you making up, she'd said, I think a thousand eggs she had delivered to the food bank. I said, it would be like you making a thousand omelets. There's a difference, you know, it's, but it is challenging. We have to find better ways to do it. And we have to make sure that we're feeding people like dairy farmers of Ontario. I mean, I think, I can't even remember the number of, I think over 1.4 million liters of milk they've made sure to donate to food banks throughout Ontario. That's impressive. What would be more impressive is we were able to limit the number of people who had to resort to a food bank to make sure that their families were well fed. That's where the focus should be, not on saying that we spent, uh, this farmer over here mismanaged his contract, so that's the cause of, of the hunger. That's not the cause of hunger. And it's too bad that we're missing that point when that video is shown around. I agree. And it's funny, I play on my iPad and play the odd game just as a distraction in the mornings. And there's one that's advertised to me that I don't play that is sort of building a farm and it has cows and you feed the cows and then you sell the milk directly. And that's sort of the perception that many people have. Milk's not going into bottles or cartons on your farm. It is going to a processing facility and it is being separated and then reconstituted or it's being skimmed and part of it's being turned into ice cream and part of it. And I think that you can't just take milk notwithstanding that you can drink raw milk, but there are food safety issues, there are food quality issues, that invisible food processing step for many people is actually invisible. And while you can take eggs directly to the food bank, you can't take milk directly to the food bank. It's got to be pasteurized. It's got to be made into homogenized or 2% or into yogurt or into cheese or any of those things. And that doesn't happen like that. And I think that's worth thinking. I want go, go ahead. I was, I was going to say that also another thing is, is that there's another, the, one of the things that consumers and eaters like me don't see, well, I do see it, but some don't, um, don't see, but they rely upon is the quality assurances that go into that processing piece. It doesn't matter if that's on-farm processing or if it is at a processing plant. There are layers of security requirements and regulatory oversight that provide so much perfect protection for, for us to make sure that the food that you are receiving is safe and high quality and free from so many things. And that is something that we expect and assume, but we, it's because we expect it. And at this point, we forget that it's there. And when you miss that step, you're also missing off that as well. So, I mean, I think it's important to note that. And, and, you know, food insecurity is a huge thing that means a lot to me. I, as a farmer, I cannot stand the idea of someone being hungry and food going to waste just because of a pricing system or because of the way we have managed it or because exports are shut down or, or all of that. But the fact of the matter is, is that what we do is not what drives security. It's just we're not able to solve it completely from the farm. And that just means that we need more people involved. That That's fascinating, Jenny. And I, I want to go back to something that you talked about a, a few minutes ago uh, and follow up on it, where you said that you have production requirements as well on your farm and that maybe you didn't say it explicitly, but you implied that you have an agreement with your processor, but about, about how much you can produce. And so you need to manage your production levels. Did I understand that correctly? 
So yeah, so we uh, we are actually farmer owners of our cooperative, which is Cabot Creamy Cooperative, uh, organized similarly to um, Gay Lee Co-op. So as a co-op representing 600 dairy farms throughout all six of New England states, so Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and parts of New York, we have our own facilities where we produce cheese and other cultured products. We have uh, three of those facilities that throughout the New England and New York region, and um, so actually four, four owned properties. And then um, we also market milk for farmers. So for someone like me and the Maine dairy farmers, there's 165 dairy farms in the state of Maine, and our population is a little bit less than the city of Toronto. So that gives you an idea of the scale of Spain. Our, all of our production in the state of Maine is marketed by our co-op because it would be far too expensive for our co-op to ship all that milk to one of those out-of-state processing facilities and one of our own facilities to become cheese. So they handle the marketing of our milk to a processor. There's only really two very large processors here in the state that are handling larger quantities of fluid milk. And so we are lucky to and fortunate to be going to them. However, because it's almost all of it turned into fluid milk, so whether you're talking about a gallon jug here in the US or similarly a, a bag there, we are, you know, we really need to make sure our supply meets their demand and fluid milk consumption is down and they have other products on their line that they bottle, whether it's uh, fruit juices or bottled water. So. As they request more, the demand is, excuse me, less. As they demand less from us, um, our co-op has, has needed to make sure that they balance their own processing capabilities and capacity with the production of our farms. That's a, a lot of words to say, yeah. So we have caps on our production. We were made well aware of it ahead of time. It wasn't easy. It's difficult. It's a huge adjustment for our dairy farms. This is not something we've been used to. Um, managing our cows' production and our product, our reproduction, you know, so that we are not in a situation where we would have to spend more money to ship overproduction or finding out what level we can ship over and still make money has been difficult. We personally have not met our quota until very recently, so over the past few years, and the quota started in 2020, it was scheduled to prior to COVID. We have not met that that quota ceiling until just recently in the past uh, six or seven months. So that's a mismanagement on our part. You know, as much as overproduction is a mismanagement, not meeting that quota level is also a mismanagement. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. It's, it's not for lack of trying. It's just for lack of bad luck and, and dealing with a lot of headwinds. So, I mean, it's it's been important for us to meet those challenges head on. That being said, when I speak, you know, when I'm in farmyards talking to farmers, whether it's here in Maine or in Indiana or Wisconsin or or even in Ontario, the conversations are all the same, with or without supply management or quota or base, pro, you know, program. It's all basically the same talk, the same frustrations, and and the same issues. You know, it's just I think that there's a lot more math done at the kitchen table at Canadian dairy farms than there is at U.S. dairy farms when it comes to figuring out how much you're going to produce and 
what's the best way to get the most of that money back into the farm. But that's shifting here um, because, oh, so many of our cooperatives do have these base and quota programs now. So it's, it's interesting. I On a recent episode of the podcast, I spoke with uh, Michael Barrett, who is the CEO, or I think he's maybe retired this week, uh, president and CEO of Gay Leap. Just retired. Yeah, of a local cooperative here in Ontario. What benefit do you see as a producer of being a member of this cooperative? Because it's interesting to me, your cooperative isn't processing all of your milk. It's in fact as much a marketing cooperative as it is a processing cooperative. Right. And I think you'll find that Gaylee has diversified itself to be that way as much. Um, and not just for whatever reason of geography, but because of that can be very, very um, economically profitable to co-op owners. Um, it's just sort of a yin-yang type of thing. But yeah, so one of the benefits to being a member of a cooperative is the fact that there are these principles that guide us, and it is always better to be together than alone when dealing with either good times or bad times. And I just have to make a quick shout out because, you know, I I, I understand, um, I, I I just, I just have to say that I will smuggle Freedom Cheese into Canada as long as people let me bring Nordica Smooth out, um, the Smooth Cottage Cheese from Gailey. I am, I am such a fan of that, and I would probably fork over, I don't know, Montana to Canada's possession if I could have, you know, access to Nordica Smooth on an everyday basis. But you know, <laughs> thankfully, I don't work for U.S. trade negotiators. Um, you know, luckily for everybody, including Montana. But, um, you know, to your question about cooperatives, um, I'm a big fan of the the principle of being a part of something greater than yourself, of working together, of recognizing that strength, of providing a network and resources and pooling together all of that to make more than you stronger. Um, in my cooperative, we are also a certified B Corp. Cabot Creamy Cooperative was the first dairy cooperative in the world to seek and receive that B Corp certification. And it's so important to us, um, and it translates especially and resonates with a dairy farmer like me because of its its focus on sustainability and equity and inclusion and, and providing for not just the people in the offices or the people who own it on paper, but for all the lives around us that we do touch and those that we can. I apologize for how abruptly that call, that conversation got cut off. Uh, Jenny had problems with her internet connection, but I thought the conversation was worth presenting as it was. So that is the end of this episode of the Food Focus podcast. Thank you as always for listening. If it's your first time, you can also find the podcast at the foodfocusguelph.ca website along with the blog and other content. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and and most uh, traditional podcast uh, platforms. If you like the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. I'd like to uh, take the opportunity to thank you again for listening, to say thank you to the team that works hard behind me to make things sound great, and uh, looking forward to the next episode. 